Hi, welcome to Lifestyle Democracy, the community where we learn to live and build democracies, one day at a time. In this show, we will be interviewing the champions of democracy, the pioneers who are making democracy tangible in our daily life, such as our workplaces, our schools, our families. To learn how you can support our show and become a builder of democracy, click on the link in the description of this episode. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Stefan Ivanovsky. I'm the host of Lifestyle Democracy. And today we have a very special uh, guest. His name is Dr. Milan Stankovic. He has a, a PhD in artificial intelligence. And today we would like to talk about the importance of, of privacy and also how it relates to uh, the, the topic of digital democracy. So as we, we know, democracy around the world is on a decline. And actually, there was this um, survey done by the Associated Press in February of 2021, which states that 16% of people in the U.S. believed that democracy works well or very well. So that's one six, 16%. And the United States is considered to be the beacon of democracy around the world. So if the state of affairs in the United States, one of the countries that was leading the efforts to uh, constitutionalize and institutionalize democracy, then the, the state of affairs in other countries is also in a dire state. But with the advent of uh, digital technologies such as artificial intelligence, the, the widespread use of uh, internet and smartphones, more and more people are becoming aware of the issue of, of privacy. And this is where Dr. Milan Stankovic is an expert. To uh, stall anymore, I would just uh, offer him to introduce himself in, in more details because I think he knows himself better than, than I do and I think he can do a better justice introducing himself and then we can start uh, with the questions and, and the discussion. So Dr. Milan Stankovic, if you can please introduce yourself in more detail and uh, how the work uh, around privacy for you started. Thank you, Stefan. It's a pleasure really to be with you today here and speak about these important topics. So. Uh, yeah, I have, uh, as you said, a PhD in uh, computer science, artificial intelligence that I did in um, Sorbonne University in Paris a few years ago. I was very much active for the last more than 10 years, uh, maybe even 15 years, uh, in the research uh, circles around artificial intelligence topics, around uh, using social media to infer things about people to understand uh, people and what they want, what they expect from a computer system. Obviously, when we research these topics, we usually uh, do that because we want to support the human in whatever their need is and create machines that are adapted to, to humans that can really augment them. But uh, as we all know, uh, these powerful technologies also have the power to be misused and used against these very citizens who uh, publish their data online in order to connect and to be part of a larger, if I dare say, tribe. Uh, we all want to belong somewhere. That's a natural human need. And the internet is a very, uh, is offered to us as a great tool of belonging. But at the same time, uh, it became um, a downfall of that very belonging. It became a tool uh, that creates divisions, that creates conflicts, that creates uh, sometimes even psychological isolation and illness and stigma around certain topics and people. So this is, let's say, an unintended uh, 
future for the internet, but something that's, that we see becoming more and more of a reality. So um, as a computer scientist, uh, I got very, very annoyed uh, by certain developments around uh, legislation, around governments using uh, the social media, using uh, people's data to uh, infer wrongly, often wrongly infer uh, things about citizens and then use them against it, uh, against them. So this is the, the reason that motivated me uh, to explore privacy in more detail uh, and start a company called BlindNet, uh, of which I'm one of the co-founders, uh, that has the mission to change that, to, to offer to developers a new way of building computer systems, to offer tools for developers to create better systems that can better support humans in their need for privacy. Okay, uh, great, Dr. Dr. Stankovic. So you mentioned, so I was going to ask you, what is the, what is BlindNet? And you already started explaining a, a little bit. So you mentioned that you have, first let's tackle the co-founders. So how many co-founders are, are there and what kind of profiles they they have? Yes, so uh, we we are three co-founders that started the company. Today we have a, a team of nine people that's growing and we consider some of the nine also to be late co-founders because they are so important, although they joined late, uh, later. But let's focus on the three of us that started the, the initial vision. So uh, in addition to myself, there's Philip, uh, Philip Radulovic, who also has a PhD that he got from University of Madrid. And that's a friend of mine whom I worked with for a long a number of years. Uh, and uh, he is the CTO of the company and the CEO who is in the States, uh, in New York, the, the company's headquarters in the States. And we have a subsidiary in France where the, the R&D is mainly situated. So um, our CEO, Vuk Janosevic, he is also uh, a friend from university of mine. And uh, he went after our studies, undergrad studies in Belgrade together. Uh, he went to MIT to pursue uh, an MBA and then had a career in big companies, McKinsey, JP Morgan in the States. So he knows very well the issue of privacy for companies and how companies struggle actually uh, delivering the promise of privacy and, and compliance with regulation, by the way. So the three of us are very complementary uh, in building this company towards its uh, ambitious vision. So great, great. So are all of you computer scientists? Uh, in a way, yes. So all of us started computer science in Belgrade. And uh, Vuk, after his bachelor in computer science, he uh, switched to management. So he did an MBA. Uh, and Philip and myself, we continued in, in computer science uh, until PhD level. Although I would say myself, I'm both a computer scientist and a businessman. This is my second company. I already created one startup that I sold, and I'm kind of a very versatile person in, in, in the company. So, so a, a serial entrepreneur, if I may. Well, yes. Okay. So when did the BlindNet start? To, just to confirm, I may have missed that. Yeah, so what well, year was we started, yeah, we started a bit more than a year ago. So we were initially supported by um, an accelerator from um, from the states called now called forum ventures 
uh, and then uh, the, the investors from France joined uh, Alaya Partners, ASCAP, who is a French and American uh, VC. So we were very early on uh, VC funded and started building at first baby steps and proof points. Uh, and now we already start having clients that use our product and that are happy to provide uh, a new kind of experience to their customers. So what is it that you exactly do, if you can explain to someone who is not very technical, because I think the people who would be listening to this interview may not fully understand what, what is it that you do and how it sets you apart from other competitors. Why is mm -hmm. BlindNet different than others? Yes, so I, I like explaining that very well. So if you like, um, the computer systems have been created with the idea to enable connection to enable people to connect to others, to a larger community, to information. And everybody, technical or not, even my mother, they are using the internet uh, often naively in that, uh, with that purpose in mind. But um, we, the computer scientists, we didn't know or we didn't think about that when the internet was made, that a crucial part of connection is privacy. That when you connect to someone, you also want to regulate connection, that you need to have control over when the connection ends. If you want to remove yourself from a friendship, you just want to disconnect someone, that's your, that's your need, that's your right to be in control of the connections in which you participate. And we simply, when the internet was made more than 50 years ago, uh, and the web more than 30 years ago, um, we didn't think that this would be that important. So we just built the connectedness part and we didn't build the privacy part. We didn't allow you to regulate. So once you gave your data online, they stayed there forever and you simply couldn't do anything. So what we are doing, we BlindNet offers software components for developers who are building internet websites, who are building uh, applications, everything that a common user uses. So we offer to them tools and components so that they can build software differently, so that they can bake privacy into their code and offer new kind of services where the internet user is able to control the extent to which they want to share something and to also uh, get back, get, get out of relationships that they no longer want to maintain. So basically, you're like, a, if I may give this analogy, you're like the hardware store and a person goes in and finds the right tool that they need for their particular problem in order to make their particular business more privacy proof. So, exactly. So exactly. are you providing uh, code or are these ready packages in different uh, coding languages? Everything. So there, there is code, there are packages in different coding languages, there are tutorials, um, there are pedagogical materials helping them learn how to do that. So we provide different, and there are also services that we offer that are simply uh, the same code that they can run by themselves, but maintained by us and run by us so that we offer uptime and, and maintenance of that. So there's uh, different levels of, of service for developers, uh, depending on how techy they are, they can use our tools at different stage. 
but definitely it's for developers, so it, it, we are not a B2C startup. We hope to make a lot of end users happy, but by actually impacting the way software is built. So you're B2B? You're... Yes, yes, exactly. We are a B2B startup because developers and companies who have who are our clients, they are actually companies who offer some other kind of software, some other kind of service. So since we are purely a software company, we are embedded in other people's tools. So are most of the clients in the corporate world or they are in the government? What's the split? Currently, we have clients who are businesses. Currently, most of our clients are small businesses because we are all young company and onboarding a large business takes a bit more time than we have lived as a company. Uh, so for the moment, we have uh, small and medium uh, businesses, like we have a, a law firm uh, in France that specialized in labor law and that started offering their services online. And obviously there's the, the client's attorney privilege that's very important for them. So in order to uh, offer that to their clients online, they have to implement our solutions to, uh, to encrypt data end to end and make sure that no one other than the lawyer can ever see uh, the client's information. Uh, then we have a dental clinic who also collects very sensitive information about medical history of their patients and that needed the same level of protection. And with that also with GDPR compliance offering the, the users the ability to simply request that one day they change their mind, they want their data deleted or modified or whatever, uh, simply support uh, these kind of rights out of the box and uh, allow users to know that when they are giving their data, they remain in control. And uh, in that way, we help also our clients uh, build trust online. So we, we realize that for our clients, the key issue why they are actually, why they decide to offer privacy uh, in addition to being good guys is trust because uh, it's very difficult when you're when you don't see the person when you don't have physical connection with them uh, it's very difficult to build trust and convince someone that they should trust you uh, out of any other uh, vendor out there on the internet so you need to build in your product everything that you can so that you reassure the users that you're the good guy and that they can trust you and that they will with you, they will not be negatively uh, surprised or disappointed. So basically that's what we, we offer them to, uh, to act upon this need for trust, to bake privacy and encryption and all these control mechanisms into their code and that way uh, reassure clients and build trust. Great, great. That sounds very good and very important. I have another question regarding uh, in relation to that. So why is there a need for another privacy protection tool or, or company? There seem to be a lot of different companies. So what sets you apart? The notion I get is that you offer these already made components, packages that serve small businesses, like you mentioned, a law firm, a dentist practice. And also you do some customized solutions. So what sets you apart? What, do, what would you say sets you apart? And are there any other companies like BlindNet that do what you do? 
Yeah, there are definitely others who play in the area of privacy. We are not the first and not the only ones, that's for sure. Uh, on the other hand, when you look at the simply the, the, the internet landscape of internet services, you see that customers, they don't have privacy. You know, it's not something that's out there. It's not a given when you interact with an internet service. So th this proves that there's a need for a change and that these companies that currently provide privacy-oriented services are simply insufficient. Uh, so you can clearly observe that there, there is a movement towards uh, encryption, for instance. There's a signal application, Telegram, a lot of people and customers, uh, even if they're not very tech savvy, they use signal and Telegram. They want to protect their privacy and use these uh, advanced services. So that's a very good uh, progress, but uh, they don't have end-to-end -end encryption in all exchanges. The same customer who uses Signal and Telegram, they will still use email to send uh, a very confidential medical file to their doctor. And they don't even know that email is not, uh, unfortunately not a secure protocol and that basically it's very easy to, to spy on the uh, the email exchanges and uh, because an email message basically travels around the globe uh, in order to reach another uh, internet user and that basically uh, the information is unencrypted on servers uh, on which it transits uh, in order to reach the destination. So many people don't know that. Fortunately, there is regulation uh, clearly saying uh, to professionals that they can no longer use email for this kind of uh, confidential data exchanges. So uh, that includes a push to many companies that have not had access to privacy first technologies to use solutions like Blindnet. Uh, so there is definitely a lot of privacy tools, as you say, but most of them so far have addressed the issue of an individual or the issue of anonymity like Tor, uh, where simply you seek to secure information of journalists or people who simply need protection uh, from the government. But very little has been done to actually um, impact the software architecture of general systems, of whatever application, of whatever user. Uh, there's not so many companies that regard privacy as something generally needed by virtually every software dealing with user information. Um, I could name a few, uh, to, just to name drop, I, I could name a few competitors, uh, there are, which are, by the way, admirable companies who do admirable work in uh, the domain of privacy, like Transcend and Ethica in the, in the States. Um, they produce uh, software allowing to to encryption, to, to data tagging. Uh, but in, in our view, uh, these are only components of what is needed. Uh, at Blindnet, we seek uh, a bit more. We seek interoperability. Uh, and that's our main differentiator, is that uh, we allow systems that, uh, you, that deal and process user data. Uh, we allow them to exchange information about users' privacy uh, in a very consistent way so that a user's request uh, can be applied across several systems. Unfortunately, 
the reality of the internet infrastructure is that when you provide information on one website, it usually goes somewhere else. It doesn't just stay on that website. It's transmitted to another uh, database, to another server, to another company. That's the reality, the, the, the most common scenario. So when this happens, uh, and when you, the user, you want to make a request for your data to be deleted, well, obviously, you want it deleted everywhere. And for this to happen, these systems need a way to interoperate, need a way to understand in a common way uh, these requests. So that's what uh, that's what we have in addition to other uh, other companies and other vendors, uh, and that's also what we believe to be the key need for internet systems, uh, privacy-wise. So let's say let's give a can we go with an example, maybe even a hypothetical example about how Blindnet operates or maybe an actual example, yeah. it doesn't have to be. So <laughs> like, let's say, I mean, shopping, let's say, let's take uh, the, the question of e-commerce. That's a very frequent uh, activity that people who have access to internet do. And so to, let's say, buy something from a particular store online, I go to that website, that website may be hosted on content management service provider like WordPress mm -hmm. or Wix, but then the payment processing may be done by Stripe or PayPal or, or something mm -hmm. else. And uh, then... Yeah, let's let's imagine the following scenario. Like you are, uh, you buy something online, you give your postal address because you want uh, a package delivered to you, right? And this postal address is, necessarily transmitted to a logistics company who will actually do the delivery, right? So there are at least two companies that know your address at the moment when you do the purchase, the e-commerce website company and the logistics company. Now you, the user, you realize that the delivery man has your address and they're showing up at your door every day and you're annoyed by that. Uh, so you want them to delete the data you want or, or you want to modify the address. Um, what Blindnet allows these companies to do, even if they use a WordPress or they use some very basic tool and they're not very techy, they can still integrate Blindnet services uh, to be able to offer you, the user, an easy way to just with a few clicks say, oh, I want to delete my address or I want to modify my address. And then the data is propagated to all the services that have this data including this um, delivery uh, logistics company. So basically your data, if the companies want to comply with regulations and they have the desire also to comply, we cannot force them. Uh, if they want to comply, Blindnet offers them an easy tool to do so and they can even automatically comply with such requests. They can automatically uh, exercise, the, uh, resolve these requests into actions uh, on their database and just do it uh, very in, in no time, very quickly. So if the, the, the postal man, the delivery man actually just records the data, takes a screenshot. Then... Yeah, you know, we are computer, uh, computer scientists and the software company. We are not a law enforcement company. So law enforcement is another issue that we don't cover. So basically uh, our job is to make software for companies who want to offer privacy now, if misuses can always happen, 
that's something that uh, there is no technology that can ever uh, guarantee a completely misuse proof uh, use of data. That, that it's not going to happen. Um, and there may be policies, but you know, policies are also easily broken. Uh, the role of blindness is to offer technology that allows something beyond policy. So it's not just a promise that a company makes to say, we are not using your data, we will respect uh, your rights. It's also a technological tool that automatically or semi-automatically will allow you to respect your rights. But in case, which we believe to be really the, the, the outlier case, that there is still some misuse, well, there, there's gonna be a need for uh, this company that has data to investigate further, to have a look at who is actually the employee who, is, who took a screenshot of your data. But anyway, anyhow, they can use BlindNet to trace the data, to trace what happened, and to uh, generate a history of your requests, of your data captures, and of what they did actually in their database. So they can know uh, where to look if they need to, to find an individual who made the misuse. Okay, so basically you can facilitate the uh, investigation process in case there, there is a need for for that not only investigation processes but we can also facilitate proof of compliance so let's say you're a company and a user just they they want to go after you in justice and say you didn't respect my rights like the gdpr rights uh well you can use blindness to also generate history of what you did of the requests the user made the, the data processing you did uh and generate a very consistent proof of what actually happened in case you were compliant, then you can defend yourself uh, very easily using our tool. So basically, um, we are not um, we are not making a world where no one can ever do anything bad. We are making a world where uh, it's easy to make good stuff. It's easy to comply. It's easy to give privacy because we believe one of the major obstacles for companies. Uh, to deliver the promise of privacy is the absence of appropriate, easy-to-use tools. Uh, you know, I, I don't think an average company is evil, uh, but an average company doesn't have tools to provide privacy. Okay, so that brings me to another question. So, well, it's twofold. What are the challenges from BlindNet? It's such a young company. So what are the challenges that you're currently facing and how affordable is BlindNet for your clients? Yes, so I, I would say we are a young company and we are facing challenges that are typically faced by young companies, uh, which is basically we sell something very new. Uh, we have a product that people are not used to buying because it didn't exist before. So as such, it's uh, the challenge is this uh, spinning off of the demand and of the offer somehow together. So that's that's the challenge that every innovative company is facing. And we are lucky to have uh, early adopter clients that help us actually kickstart this, uh, who are already using our software and who showcase basically how this can be easily done. 
uh, who allow for any other company that wants to go this this route to uh, to be reassured that it's easy, it's doable, and if uh, a law firm or a dental clinic who are not very uh, you know developer intense companies, they're not software companies by definition. If they can do it, then basically everybody else should be able to do it as well. So we are happy to have these early adopter clients. Uh, now, uh, affordability-wise, we believe that it is very affordable because, you know, running services like this, running encryption services, running uh, all these data control and compliance services uh, costs you uh, server power anyway, so they pay with us uh, a surplus, there's an additional cost, but even if they did it on their own, they would have had some cost. So it's quite a normal practice uh, to pay a bit more to have a professionally managed service. So we believe it's really in the uh, affordable zone uh, what we are offering today and uh, what we will continue to offer in the future. Okay, great. And uh, do you face any challengers or com uh, other companies that could be your competitors uh, that, or maybe government regulation that you see? What are what are the biggest threats externally that that you recognize? Be be it competitors, or be it regulation that may affect you. Yeah. So regulation for the moment we don't see it as a as a threat. It's more of an opportunity because there's. Um, more and more regulation even in the states there, there there's new regulation being uh, discussed at, at present and uh, in europe there is gdpr which is quite uh, a well-established uh, regulation that is almost not at all respected uh, yet uh, because of the lack of tools so we see this as an opportunity uh, with regards to challenges there's always risks you know you can always have a big company who gets in your way and starts to build what you are building but just with more money and more resources there's always this risk for any tech startup um, we believe that our knowledge our experience and the fact that we are pioneers in what we do uh, is uh, a strong defense against this sort of threat. So that's our strategy for the moment, and then we'll see how how that goes. Oh, great, great. Oh, wishing you the best of luck with with BlindNet Thank and the future you. work you do. So, well, it also seems like you have experience before selling a startup successfully. So, that that's an important testament to your capabilities. Now I would like to move on to another topic, so more related to privacy and uh, ad tech. So why did you become an advocate for privacy? Why do you believe that privacy is such an important thing or topic to discuss? Yeah, so I, it all started with a frustration when I read a newspaper article in France about how the French government has contracted a private company to make a tool that would use social media to infer automatically about the revenues of a person. And then they said they would compare this estimation of revenues with tax declarations, and they would pursue people where they find the difference between this estimated supposed revenue and um, 
and the actual tax declaration. So they, they give, give an example if they would find the photo of you on Instagram where you were photo, photographed with a Ferrari, uh, they would consider you to be rich. Obviously, it's very difficult today to precisely recognize a Ferrari and even more difficult to establish that the Ferrari is yours. Uh, on a photo that you posted on the Instagram. It's more likely that if you posted the Ferrari, it's just that you took a photo with somebody else's Ferrari. Uh, and making this sort of inference, to me, it felt very irritating because as a computer scientist, I know uh, where are the limits of inference that you can make there. They go very far, but not as far as the French government would have liked. Uh, so, and that made me realize how fragile we are on social media, how fragile we are on the internet, and how everything that computer scientists before me have built is insufficient to actually enable connectedness. And then I started digging into literature, and I found out about research in biology that says that privacy is actually a physiological need. Uh, that it's linked with physiological uh, functions and sanity of animals and that it exists within uh, social animals, so not any animal, but obviously those that have some sort of social behavior. Uh, there were studies in the, in the 70s, I believe, in, in biology that show how um, basically these uh, animal societies uh, develop some sort of information asymmetry, where on one hand, uh, the social animals, they gather in groups in order to achieve some common functions like protection from uh, outside uh, threats or heat or common food. But then uh, also they compete among the group for scarce resources such as food. Um, and the knowledge about uh, another individual's health or resources that they gathered uh, is a threat in this uh, intergroup inter struggle. So basically it's, it's very basic. It's a need that pre-exists human society and it's fundamental and it's something that we have been neglecting in computer science. So when I saw how neglected and how important this need was, it gave me really a lot of um, a lot of motivation to pursue uh, the research uh, around it and then uh, to create products and services for privacy because I, I really think when you look at the whole internet stack it's really a missing brick uh, without which the whole internet might fall so yeah so so it's more than just uh a human right, but privacy is a biological need for humans as exactly. well as animals. Yeah, this this reminds me of we spoke before the the show actually that during the pandemic, pandas were well pandas in zoos. There was a big concern that they were not reproducing, and uh, when the pandemic hit, and then there were not so many onlookers that uh, actually there was. <laughs> more privacy and intimacy that was uh, being played out between the, the pandas. So probably that's one just viral example on the internet that highlights the points that you're making. Exactly. And to, to my knowledge, there, I've read research papers in biology where an experiment was conducted on mice 
that were put uh, in a fourth absence of privacy, they were put together and they couldn't obtain privacy in the setting where they were observed. And this led to uh, physiological disorders and obviously uh, the impossibility of reproduction uh, for them, which is uh, a feature of an individual right. Uh, so yeah, it, it's really more than a human right. So now going back to the internet and linking privacy to digital democracy, do you think it's it's possible to have a privacy-first internet by design, or it's too late? Huh. Uh, I I believe it is possible. Otherwise, I wouldn't be making uh, this company and participating in in mining. But uh, I, I think it's also a bit late. It's surprisingly late that we start actually patching the internet with all these privacy uh, tools. I, on the other hand, I don't believe there is any future of the internet without privacy. Because what I realized looking into literature from psychology, from biology, sociology, different areas uh, and everything done on the topic of privacy, I realized that there is no connectedness without privacy. That uh, privacy is basically uh, regulation of connectedness and that any connectedness that's engineered without uh, the ability of connected parties to regulate this connection, um, it's a sort of violence. It's a sort of uh, something from which people will simply walk away. And we also see, uh, we also see despite the growth of social networks and the, the growth of usage of the internet, we also see phenomena that's worrying. Uh, we also see people more and more uh, reluctant to share uh, photos or information on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, we see this kind of uh, phenomena that are not illustrating a positive growth. We see very uh, people who are wary of, of, of these uh, dangers that present, that this sort of connectedness presents. So uh, I think as a computer scientist, we need to build an internet that people can trust. Otherwise, there's not gonna be any internet. Uh, I think it, it might sound unthinkable that internet might disappear. And uh, I wanted to stay on, but in order, in order for it to survive, I think it needs to address the question of trust, just from a functional point of view, uh, not only from the human rights point of view and, and what should be, you know, and what's good and what's bad, just from a functional point of view, because if people distrust something, they will find a way around it. What do you, what do you see as a consequence of not having privacy built into the internet and you just mentioned the potential risk of the internet not being around what do you mean by that i think people cannot imagine the internet not being around or not existing unless an apocalyptic kind of scenario happens where there is no electricity and no no yeah, there, you know the, the internet didn't exist forever it's uh, quite a new thing like uh, half a century uh, that has been around we can create another one uh, we can completely imagine another network that's uh, built differently uh, with privacy in mind if this one becomes dysfunctional. 
So, and many people are thinking about this. You know, there are people around the world working on internet alternatives. Um, so anything can happen. We have seen with the pandemic, you know, it illustrated to which extent unthinkable scenarios can happen. So uh, the internet being replaced with something else is also, for me, a completely imaginable scenario. Uh, I believe, though, that what we have built with the internet is something also great, of great potential, and that it can be patched with privacy. So I like your question, uh, what, would, what, what happens, you know, without, uh, when people distrust, what, what would they do and how would they uh, behave. So we did uh, at Blindnet, we did a, a very large user study where we conducted different sorts of, uh, of uh, questionnaires and interviews to understand uh, what actually is going on in people's heads when they are facing a, a website or an application that they don't trust. And it's very interesting because uh, what comes out of the study is that there are really two types of behavior. There's one behavior where people trust the website for different reasons, because they see that there's effort towards them, that the site is made with the user in mind, that there's respect to regulation, that there's encryption, that there are a different set of elements that reassure them. And then they refer to giving their data as to a purposeful act. When you ask them about the data they gave and what they think is happening with their data, in this particular scenario, they will tell you that they gave their data because the system is going to use that data to make a better service for them and they are happy with the service and they, or I even heard the users say, oh, this company is a startup and I'm happy to help them with my data will help them grow and I like the service so I want to support them with my data. And on the other hand, you have a completely different scenario when they are using services that they don't trust. But th this might be the search engine uh, or some media outlet that they feel obliged to use because there's no alternative or simply it's better than everything else, but they distrust it. And there, when you ask them to tell you about the experiences or what data they gave, what they felt, how they felt, you will see that they felt irritated, they felt overwhelmed, they felt that they gave wrong data. They 80%, I believe 80% of people we interviewed claimed that they have, it happened to them to give wrong data on, you know, the, these data forms when they ask you to give your email address and phone number or, or, or your name in order to receive a survey or something. And people say that they gave wrong information. So this is a very alarming fact because for a user facing a website, you know, it's not a user facing another human being. It's just facing something very, very, uh, that, that they have sort of control over, right? They can always walk away and they lie. So that, that's very interesting. So um, in their home, in a very safe, supposedly safe environment, you catch a user lying. That's very interesting. So they don't feel safe. You know, they feel that they need to protect themselves and they're protecting themselves by giving false information. So that's a very alarming fact that uh, mostly no one is actually talking about, but everybody knows about it because we all did it. Um, 
and it means that there's a trust issue with the internet. And for me, if you have a trust issue with something and you're forced to use it, well, sooner or later, you'll find a way around it. Yeah, I agree. Everybody has, has done it at some point. And uh, when it comes to data privacy now, so you, you mentioned that we've given up a lot of our data already and that pri internet should have been built. This is what I'm hearing from you, saying that the internet should have been built with privacy in mind when it was first yes. designed. So now that people have given up their data, is it too late for those people who have already uh, entered the internet and have given up their data? What about the next generations? Because the, the, the young people who are just entering the internet, what are their thoughts? Have you interviewed any of them? And is there hope for the new and young generations to have privacy their yeah. digital experience. This is a yeah. This is a great question. So, in in our own study that we did, we didn't have a large enough sample to actually distinguish between young people and older people and their different the difference between their behavior. Uh, we just have a sample that's representative of the population, but uh, not that granular. But on the other hand, Gartner has done a study where they asked a, a bit more over general questions, right? Uh, but they have uh, actually distilled their sample into generations. And what they show is that uh, there's a huge difference between behavior of young generations and older generations with regards to privacy in the sense that um, the younger you are, the more likely you are to do something about your privacy. So they actually inquired into behavior of users who would act upon uh, their privacy need and actually do something to either switch to a vendor that's more privacy first or do something, you know, install a software that would protect them or use a software that deliberately protects their privacy. And when you look for this kind of users, uh, they are mostly situated in the younger generations. Um, this is also indicative of another phenomenon that we are mostly all aware of, is that the younger people are, the, especially those who are born with internet, who are born with smartphones in their hands, uh, they are a bit more aware of the potential of the internet and of technology in general. And the awareness of potential also leads to awareness of the danger. Uh, so it's not surprising that younger generations are generally considered more privacy aware and more, more demanding of, of privacy. So I'm very hopeful and very optimistic about uh, the internet in the hands of young generations. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that the young people are more aware, but they still don't have access to the easy, easy access to the tools to actually exactly. protect their exactly. privacy. So. So exactly. That's where we, we come to play. That's where you come in. And, and how do customers find you? So currently, uh, it's mainly early adopters who heard about us by word of mouth. Uh, we are starting getting more and more press, and we start having first customers who come to us because they've read about us. Uh, we also hope to... Um, to have an impact on the developer community. We have a developer advocate and we just started a program that we call uh, Summer of Privacy. 
So during this summer, 22, we will actually uh, do a lot of educational events to educate developers, to give them hands-on access to our tools and teach them how to build software for the, these new generations who are privacy uh, aware. Um, so that's what we are actually hoping to, to generate more and more traction and more and more customers about us and to start using our tools. Ideally, the ideal world for BlindNet is that BlindNet is everywhere in every software and that no end user ever needs to know about us as they never hear about MySQL servers or you know all these technologies that are omnipresent but that the end customer never hears about. That's what we want to become. Okay, great. And uh, so it seems like uh, I like the way you refer to this generation, uh, uh, privacy aware. And I guess the previous generation was privacy agnostic or privacy indifferent. And then maybe there is a new generation coming, which is privacy savvy or privacy uh, enabling. So you're uh, the privacy enabler, uh, the privacy pioneer, and then the users, you envision them to be privacy savvy or privacy responsible. Exactly. Exactly. I like very much these, these names of new generations. Maybe we stop naming them Generation X or Y or Z and they start being, uh, you know, generations with regards to privacy. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're moving on to the topic of digital democracy. So what do you understand by digital democracy? I understand by digital democracy some sort of digitally negotiated harmony. Uh, I, I am a strong believer of this uh, negotiation on online. You know, uh, in the early designs of the uh, of the World Wide Web, uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of World Wide Web, included something like that: that one day users would be able to come to a website and sort of negotiate the behavior uh, and automatically come to a sort of a contract. You know, uh, I I believe democracy plays a role in, in social contract. Obviously, and it's sort of a, a negotiation between an individual and uh, the larger group to which the individual belongs. It's a management of the power differential, and I believe the digital technology can indeed play a role in maybe better negotiating this this uh, power differential. So uh, I also believe in the context of democracy that uh, democracy lives, go through a crisis, as you said in the beginning. Uh, I believe this crisis is partially created by technology because somehow, you know, the, the individual in the age of Aristotle had much less power because the individual didn't have a computer. They didn't have a smartphone. And they uh, now with a smartphone in their hands, they have access to virtually limitless knowledge. They have access to additional intelligence, to additional cognitive power, which is a microprocessor in their hand, basically, uh, which is a smartphone. Uh, and I believe this also shifted the power differential because paradoxically the human gained 
gained the individual gained more power through technology. But now the the the, the, the bigger group and the countries also gained a lot of power through artificial intelligence and tools to which they have access to which an individual doesn't have access. So the whole disbalance has shifted through technology and new disbalances were created. So yeah, I think uh, it, it's a very interesting topic to understand how technology actually uh, is shaping this disbalance and how it can uh, help negotiate a new balance. So just to just to recap, it, you've unpacked a lot of information, but you said the key to digital democracy is negotiation, negotiation of contracts between different people. The, the way I see this is, in, at least in Western style democracy, is uh, the, the history of ancient Greek democracies or the early democracies where they had the agora or the big like forum or marketplace where they would gather and then discuss in public. And these agoras now are the digital forums, online forums, the websites and and basically the internet, so to speak, where people comment and and exchange ideas and opinions sometimes in a very, well, in a wide variety of ways, I would say, just to mm -hmm. sum it up. Uh, so in one way you say that technology, the advance of technology has created these threats and disbalances, but I feel like you've hinted that technology can also be used to reshape and recreate or, or create new ways of negotiating the, the, these contracts. Definitely, definitely. That, that's uh, definitely what technology is there for. So I wanted to follow up with a question about that. So do you think privacy matters for, for democracy? And so this, this is a twofold question because you said that privacy is a way to create trust, but also there are these in certain social circles when two strangers connect or two people connect in order for in order to create create an emotional bond with somebody it's very important to share one of the most vulnerable experiences mm -hmm. which is also something very private so once somebody has entrusted let's say uh let's say that we meet in person and then we ex we have a really nice chat in a bar or somewhere else and then and then we start exchanging things that are very private and if there is the right, uh, so to speak, energy uh, between uh, between the two of us and uh, the right flow, then we, we can create this strong trust by sharing something that was very private and mm -hmm. vulnerable for us. So in, in some ways, sharing private things or private matters of our personal experiences can create trust. But in the case of the internet, privacy seems to create distrust and suspicion and, and sharing. So can you reconcile this and how it also impacts uh, the state of democracy? Yeah, uh, I like what, what, I like the word you use, vulnerability. So let me refer to a researcher, Brené Brown, who is a very famous vulnerability and shame researcher. So uh, if you are familiar with her work uh, and whoever isn't, I recommend them strongly to read any of the Brene Brown uh, books. Um, she, uh, she defines also trust in the context of vulnerability 
And vulnerability is something necessary, definitely, for human connection and for trust. So that becomes evident in her work. Uh, but then she gives this metaphor of the marble jar. So th this is something used in, in schools uh, with very small children, where the teacher would have a marble jar. And when students are good, they're well behaving, the teacher puts marbles in the jar. And when the jar is full, there's trust. And when students do something bad, then the teacher would uh, take the, the marbles, a uh, few marbles out, and the trust would uh, simply lower. So they would have uh, some, some sort of measure of the, the relationship that they have uh, with regards to vulnerabilities and breaches of trust by doing something unexpected or, or, or bad. So uh, yeah, once you become vulnerable, it's not like, you know, irreversible. Uh, I, I believe really trust is like a marble jar. You have an ongoing relationship. There are things you do well, there are things you do wrongly, and then the marble jar gets uh, filled out or filled in, and uh, it, it evolves. So it's the same on the internet. You know, we simply need to engineer the marble jar uh, for trusts on the internet and allow users to do these micro actions. They might simply one day decide they no longer trust you. Yesterday they trusted you, today they no longer trust you. So they want their, their information back. They don't want you to have it anymore. And you need to deliver on that and really give them information back and delete it if they want you to delete it. So if you then if you do that, they might trust you again, you know, and give you new information. And then as long as you behave, uh, well, you can expect them to trust you. So basically, uh, vulnerability is indeed a key aspect of trust and as well on the internet as on the offline uh, in the offline world so it's just what trust is about uh, and we need to engineer it here uh, in, in internet tools now uh, the question with regards to democracy what's the relationship between trust and democracy I, I really think both trust and democracy are somehow uh, about uh, the the role an individual has with regards to the group and to the others, right? It's essential. We the, this idea of belonging to a larger group is essential for human beings. We are social animals, and it's very important for us. That's why the democracy is so important because it allows to regulate this relationship that we have with others. But privacy is a key element of that relationship. Privacy is actually a key element of our connectedness, uh, which is some sort of way to regulate the relationship. So the two, for me, are really tightly interlinked. Great, great. So I like the marble jar example. I think Renia Brown, she sounds familiar, but I will look into her work and and if you have any other uh, great books to suggest or research, that would be very helpful. So the marble jar reminds me a little bit of the review system of websites, but also of the padlock on, on the websites, the padlock symbol, which certifies that there is, correct me if I'm wrong, but this SSL certificate or mm -hmm. verification that an appropriate and a fun appropriately functioning, a functioning uh, SSL certificate is there so that the payments and the information that is being sent, the sensitive information that is being sent is essentially encrypted. Is this a accurate? 
True, yeah, the, the SSL uh, connection is about, you know, the connection between your computer and the website, to the server that serves the website. So it, it's only about a very small part of the, the whole internet interaction, right? But it's still important that you have the SSL, otherwise you are completely vulnerable. Yeah, one idea maybe for you to think about with the marble jar is, so instead of having a, rate, a classical rating system with stars or, or numbers about like one to five, five being the highest, maybe you can have a marble jar and then if the website is trustworthy to well behave, the, yeah. yes, then <laughs> they can have a full marble jar or emptying marble jar. So maybe that's yeah, something. that's a good uh, yeah, that's I like that actually. I, I like that very much. I will definitely look into the idea of visually representing the trust between a user and the website. Yeah. Because one thing that I think people would, or users or customers may like to see is what is the standard way of measuring trust? And it's probably difficult to quantify the, the level of trust. Maybe the level of trust is subjective, but also it can be partly, partly objective in the sense that how many of the processes that exist, let's say there is a complete mapping of the processes that happen between a, a user and somebody interfacing and then let's say there are 10 processes in place and then if seven are fully encrypted and trustworthy and three are not then maybe the the jar is seven tenths full so yeah it's definitely something to look into i think there are different levels you know there's a website whether it's trustworthy in general or then you can measure it on the level of the relationship between a website and a particular user a particular user may have their own marble jar per website so yeah that that's definitely an interesting question i know there is a lot of research about uh, trust online you know and how uh, you can measure trust uh, and there's always this complexity of perception how do you present it to the user so that the user considers this an, uh, a viable measure that they agree with it's a very difficult question um, you know what i like is for instance the the creative commons what they have did with visually representing different licenses uh, I think that's a great uh, that's a great achievement for users to be able to simply see a few pictograms and know what the license is about, what they can do with the work of art. Now, uh, I, I believe we are still a long way to go, but we should aim to have some sort of visual representation like that for privacy and for what the user, the websites are actually promising to the user. What kind of privacy do they promise? Do they uh, do automatic inference, do they share your data, do they sell your data, do they store your data in your country or in some other country or, you know, focus on key elements of what people care about and offer some sort of pictograms uh, that would be generally used and then generally understood. So I, I think we still have a long way to go until we can have sufficient understanding to make simple enough pictograms, uh, but it's definitely something that's much needed. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think easier ways of communicating the data and what the tool actually does helps the non-technical people because usually the, the decision makers in companies you probably know well are non-technical people and they are mm -hmm. the ones that the idea needs to be sold to for for approval. So 
now moving to another uh, related topic. So we talked about trust, we talked about privacy, and the internet today is not designed with privacy in mind. So the companies, especially the companies that rely on advertising funding, the the giants like Facebook, Google, um, etc., they rely on collecting data using cookies and and also uh, because Google is basically controlling Android and they're able to access a lot of the user's data through through the Android devices. The same thing with Apple on, on, on the other spectrum. So what what do you think is the impact on the advertising technology or what's referred to uh, in, in short form as ad tech on democracy? How do you think that the companies that are collecting data to push products and services to different customers, how do you think that impacts democracy? Because we talked earlier about uh, smartphones giving access to the individual and giving power to the individual, but at the same time, let's say my voice on Twitter doesn't reach as far as, for example, the the mm-hmm. voice of Elon Musk or while the former president of the mm-hmm. United States, Donald Trump, was, was there. So I feel like the, the digital it's like a digital soapbox not everyone's speakerphone uh microphone is as loud or mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like the the soapbox of people that you see maybe in the streets of paris or other places who would scream into a megaphone and and only like five people would if that would really listen to the idea i feel like we have given voice to a lot of people but there's this digital soapbox and only a few people. Yeah, it's not the same volume. It yes. sounds the same, uh, yeah. True, true, uh, you, you're right. That, that's definitely the case. Now, can we do anything better? I'm not sure, but uh, with regards to advertising, what, what I can tell you is that, uh, you know, I, I can understand the fascination with the advertising business model. I can understand it fully because it was a dominant business model for a while on the internet. Um, Does this business model have any future? Certainly, but I don't see that as a dominant business model of the future on the internet. So that to be very transparent. Uh, Why is that? So um, in my previous startup, we served the domain of travel. We had uh, a, a recommender engine. Uh, that served travel websites to actually help the user on, within one session without much knowledge about who the user is and what they did before and actually where the users were fully anonymous, uh, help them navigate a large set of uh, travel offers. So that, that's what we did and we had quite some success there. Uh, and what I learned uh, about advertising is that most of my customers who were travel companies they would not be profitable on advertising. So basically the advertising they uh, used was inefficient. What what happened, the average would be that in order to generate one purchase on on an internet website selling travel, uh, you would usually pay around 60 euros of advertising cost uh, for one purchase where you would generate less than 60 euros of actual profit. 
So then the question is, why are they doing that? Because simply without being in the advertising space uh, as a company, they risk to disappear and become irrelevant. So, um, but I don't think this is a viable model if you're, uh, you know, if, if you're not bringing people more profit than you cost, then uh, somehow uh, in the long run, uh, there's no future for you. Uh, <laughs> that's what I think. And in addition, when you look at the advertising um, software online, what it results with is a very, very bad user experience. So let, let's take typical media outlet websites. You go to, to a media website, like a newspaper website, and you have all these pop-ups, you have all these different content that come uh, interfere with your reading. You, you start reading and then the text moves and, and you have some advertising content there. Uh, all this behavior uh, um, go directly against uh, user experience guidelines, which are general. You know, interrupting the user while they read, having moving parts while the user is looking at them. It's the, the school example of awful user experience. So if you look at this user experience, you can realize that this is a move of a desperate and dying industry. It's not a move of a confident industry that's well in their boots in their business model. So I think the, the future of business models of the on the internet goes more towards paid services. People are more and more willing to pay for different, you know, streaming services, whatever they are using, they, they just, it became normal to pay for something online. The advertising business model was born when people wouldn't pay online for anything. They expected the service for free and there needed to be advertising to finance it. But no, that's no longer the case. People now are willing to pay for applications for different services and the advertising model has its place, but it's not the place it has today, definitely. And what do you think those big corporations that are dominating the space of advertising? Uh, it seems like we, we talked about how the internet and the access to technology has enabled people to participate but also I feel like it's distracted people and also interrupted the user experience on the internet. So what do you think would be the impact on negotiating contracts in the digital forums? The impact of, of, prime, uh, of advertising? Uh, yeah, of advertising on... of, of these big companies that are using data and then that are targeting. Mm -hmm. Ah, you mean the whether they ads. would interfere with the negotiation process online uh, with the power that they have as big corporations? Yes, because it seems like the the focus of the internet has become, especially of the leading tech companies, they're very good at targeting people with what they need and what they want to buy in terms of mm -hmm. products and services, and they're becoming even better. So are humans becoming effective consumers or informed individuals, well, effective and maybe policy-wise distracted mm -hmm. individuals or uh, we, we have enabled citizenry, which is active and what is your stance on 
or opinion? My, yeah, my, my opinion is, um, is that somehow both are true, you know, we, I think today, obviously, there is a missing piece of the internet, which is the privacy, and we are trying to fix that, and I believe we will fix that. Uh, and in the future, we'll have more in, in empowered citizens and the internet users. But on the other hand, I don't believe that will be the end of targeted sales and targeted uh, e-commerce, because I believe that also it's in the interest of the user to not go through a lot of products to find the one that they need. So the user ultimately, if they want to buy something, then they want to buy the right, the best product that best fits their needs. Uh, but I also believe the, the way how it's currently engineered through giving data to big companies so that they decide what you need, it might be reversed. You know, you can completely imagine a computer system where the the big corporations, they expose their products with a lot of data about their products and uh, your customer application then, uh, you know, does the calculation of what you need and then purchases for you. So you can just, um, shift the computing power and the, the, the reasoning part more closer towards the user and in the user's control. And in the end, it might be in the interest of big corporations and their efficiency so that they can also sell uh, more products uh, to the people who actually need them. Uh, I don't believe it's the interest of big corporations and citizens is fundamentally opposed. But it's, it, it is implemented today with today's tools in an unfortunate way. Okay, I have a few questions now popping in my mind. So what, what do you think about uh, open source tools and open source software? Yeah, so Blindnet is open source to be very direct. So I think very positively of, of open source tools and software. I think it helps create great things and it fostered collaboration in a tremendous way. Uh, so we are strong proponents of open source. Our own tools are open source and we are proud to also use other open source uh, software, yeah. And is there a risk for, for you as a company that some other companies may just take that open source code and start their own competitor? Because the open source means just that the code can be verified independently by other developers and other tech literate and tech savvy people to verify yeah, that what you say you do, it actually, it's being yeah. done. Yeah, that's the, that's clearly the, the purpose. One of the purposes of open source is to have verifiable code and uh, to achieve transparency. But then uh, I, I strongly believe that the key competitive advantage that a company like Planet develops is always the expertise. Uh, it's, you know, the idea of building a software and then uh, holding onto it as if it was something precious, it doesn't resonate uh, in my mind. My experience as a computer scientist has been that you, you're always a step ahead. You know, whenever you build a piece of software or an algorithm or whatever, um, you are always a step ahead and you always have the next version in mind. You know, it's like iPhone. Uh, it's always every year you have a new version. It's, it's not that the old version was bad. Uh, it's not that it was good in, uh, wasn't good enough, but now you have something better and you are always competitive 
by staying uh, always a step ahead. That's the that's basically how competitiveness is built in the software world, uh, and that's what I believe uh, as well. We are doing uh, in BlindNet. We have open source tools. We build open source software. It's true that there is risk that someone might take this and commercialize it. Of course, there is always that risk, but uh, we will always also be a step ahead and we will always have new and better uh, tools and we will always have more expertise and knowledge than any other competitor about the tools that we've built because we've built them and we understand them better. So we'll always be able to offer better service, better advice, uh, and simply uh, people who will rely on our services, they will be better served uh, with privacy infrastructure than if they went to any competitor. So would you ever consider going down the, the proprietary route for the, the development of the software? We had discussions in the beginning. Uh, we had discussions about that and we took an informed decision to go open source. So uh, obviously this was a decision in which we involved our investors and uh, several people in the company and we made this decision as an informed one. We took the idea of proprietary route but we feel that uh, having in mind what we are building, how crucial it is, and the fact that it's about privacy and security, we absolutely need to offer this transparency. It's not, it does not really have a, a true alternative. Do you rely on other open source tools yourself in your daily work, for example, not just to work at BlindNet? Yeah, well, daily I use, uh, for instance, I use Atom, which is an open source uh, markdown editor. Uh, we use at BlindNet, we use a plausible IO for like the alternative to Google Analytics. Uh, yeah, I use a lot of open source tools. Which one's your favorite? I think I currently I'm most impressed with the uh, with plausible IO. What impresses you the most? It impresses me the idea that uh, you can that you can build that you can aim at replacing something so ubiquitous as Google Analytics. I, I think it's really a bold ambition that I admire very much. Okay, great. And uh, at the beginning, we discussed a little bit about so the topic of digital democracy. In my view, also touches on the topic of digital work and worker rights and with the rise of digital technologies such as artificial intelligence, blockchain and so forth, there may be some users or, or creators who or entrepreneurs who will be more empowered in terms of the influence they have in terms of the monetary power which they they can generate but also manage so in in that regard what do you think uh, is the future of democracy in the workplaces and what do you feel like it will be we, we, we spoke a little bit about this before before the show that unions as they were popular in the 18th 19th 20th century may no longer even today they're relevant i wouldn't i wouldn't completely dismiss them that they're irrelevant but 
how relevant would they be in a world where people rely on remote work, digital tools? Yeah, I think the, yeah, the distributed work and remote work raises a, a whole new set of issues that are not typically issues of the, the you know, the working class struggle and the unions. Uh, and you clearly see the, the lack of interest of young generation for, for joining unions and for the union work. Um, because obviously, uh, the issues we are facing in this digital world and with the work in the digital world are not yet became, they, they have not yet become clear enough uh, so that there is a fight around them. And it, it's, I don't see a clear vision of any, that anyone has presented of how should, you know, the, these work relationships look like ideally. Uh, we only see how they look uh, today. We see how people often struggle to find the, the, the balance uh, in their work, to find a rhythm when they work from home, to find uh, simply resources that they need in order to support their, their work uh, from this environment. Um, and we don't know, you know, there, there's not a clear vision on how it should look like and uh, then that this vision could inspire a fight for such better world. Um, I also think the the class struggle that uh, made rise to unions is um, has shifted a little bit today. Uh, today we have the struggle also between the, in the digital divide. There are different sorts of struggles, right? There are different sorts of of divides, not only the class uh, divide and the, the divide between the workforce and the capital. So. Um, there are a whole novel sets of uh, uh, several novel sets of issues that exist in the digital uh, workspace, and there is not sufficient clarity. I believe there is definitely space for improvement there. I believe there is definitely space for something new and more relevant to younger generations and to the the intellectual worker. Uh, who uses the internet, who uses the, uh, these uh, digital tools uh, in their daily life. I think there's a, one of the largest struggles that I'm aware of, it's struggle for purpose. I think people care a lot about their work being purposeful and often online, when you work remotely, there's often struggle to understand how your part of the workplace a role in a bigger picture. Uh, that's for me, as someone leading people and teams, it's been also a struggle for me to translate the message of the bigger picture and of how work of everybody plays a role in the bigger picture. Uh, it's been a major part of my work and I know that it's something people care about globally and I know it's a major reason why people also change jobs and you know, leave the environments when they don't feel that their work and their presence is purposeful. So, yeah, it's, um, th these are new issues, I believe, or old issues that we now become aware of. Uh, but, yeah, I, I believe the, 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 all these syndicates and, um, and the question of digital work, it's going to take a, a very new shape very soon. 
great. So there, recently in, in the US, there was a successful unionization effort at Amazon at one of their warehouses. But Amazon is one of the, it's not just a warehousing company, even though a lot of their workforce is employed at their warehouses. So there are hundreds or thousands of warehouses across the world that they, that they use. But what do you think about, um, because I feel like people are upset uh, at places like Amazon about the pay gap and so the income that they earn versus the value that they generate for the company. Do you feel like this divide and this tension may arise in digital companies that have distributed teams and how can that be assailed using technologies such as artificial intelligence or blockchain? Can these technologies be used in a way to provide new contracts like we talked about Democracy means mm -hmm. negotiated contracts between people. Do you think that these technologies can be used to create, or and do you have some ideas about potential ways that these differences and tensions can be reduced? Yeah, you caught me a bit off guard with these ideas. I, I you know, I, I'm a computer scientist, but I don't have a, an algorithm for these complex issues right away. Um, but yeah, I, I believe there's a, definitely a place for artificial intelligence and uh, smart contracts, if you want, to, in general, all, all sorts of digital negotiation um, that can play a role in, in simply negotiating uh, work relationships uh, online. You know, this, this whole idea of digital negotiation is something uh, very much uh, still rudimentary in computer science uh, circles. You know, the idea that you can, um, auto not automatically, but negotiate the contract in a machine-readable way that the machine can interpret or execute. Uh, we are still at the baby steps of computer science effort to enabling that. And it's clearly something crucial to human relationships to be able to negotiate contracts and then even change them, you know, renegotiate, uh, verify if they're respected, all, all sorts of stuff related to contracts because contracts are essential to human relationships. And it's something that is very well known that we need. We need to digitally support. And it's also something that we don't have today at in computer science research circles we don't have sufficient understanding yet on what it is, how it's done, and the totality of what it needs to entail. Uh, we have baby steps. I would say smart contracts are a baby step, really first baby step into that direction. Uh, but there's still way, way more work to, to be done uh, until we can deliver something meaningful there. What, what? Thank you for that. And what are your thoughts on the future of democracy in the world of artificial intelligence? There is a lot of discussion in certain circles about the importance and the groundbreaking changes that the maturation of technologies such as artificial intelligence are going to bring, the fear of loss of jobs or creating new opportunities for, for work. But what do you think this is? How do you think artificial intelligence is going to impact? We had some discussions before the show, so I, I just wanted to expand mm -hmm. a little bit on those. Yeah, well, I think the artificial intelligence is essentially something that can be seen in two ways. Either you perceive artificial intelligence as something that is there to replace humans, 
and then of course uh, you will fear it or you perceive it as something that's there to augment humans and help them simply become more performant have, have additional knowledge additional cognition at their disposal with this artificial intelligence and uh, i am a more of this second line of thought where we perceive artificial intelligence as something uh, that simply uh, works alongside humans and helps them. And I believe that if a technology such as artificial intelligence is to actually take a stronger ground in, in our life, in our world, it needs to also work with us. It, it's not going to be something that we submit ourselves to, but something that's submitted to us, basically, if I can... Uh, generalize things like that. Um, the AI, it's not the first time we are, we have an outbreak of, of AI research and, and tools, right? There was uh, several decades ago, we uh, knew an AI winter where uh, scientists realized that maybe the promises of AI were not something that would be delivered, at least not as imagined. And now we have some sort of second wave of AI work where there's a new hope and there is new work and maybe more realism about where are the limits of what we can do and what we should do. Uh, so I'm quite optimistic that uh, with, with a pragmatic view on AI, which is something that is needed, useful, and you know, as long as it's useful, let's do it. Um, with a pragmatic view, I think we can construct uh, really a nice place for AI in the world and for a better world. Uh, with a non-pragmatic, fatalistic view where it's gonna, with fears that it's gonna replace us and with trying, by the way, to, to replace humans, uh, we are getting nowhere. So you see artificial intelligence as essentially a tool that can augment our relations. But what are some of the pitfalls that you see with artificial intelligence. And you mentioned some of the limitations of it, but can you maybe expand a little more on how this can affect potentially the discussion and negotiations of these contracts that happen in in democracy? How artificial intelligence can potentially be a threat to forming yeah. a more healthy democracy. Well, it can it can definitely be a threat in the in the power differential you know uh, if you have a government that has uh, superior ai uh, and has access to to very elaborate technologies and then you have individuals who simply don't have access to such technologies then you can create a power differential that might become dangerous for for the simply social contract and uh, for democracy um, i'm Quite uh, my personal opinion is that uh, the governments, uh, the, the use of AI within governments, within uh, very powerful organisms, should be done with a lot of precaution. Because also, uh, there, there the power differential might become threatening, might become dangerous, and might uh, simply. Uh, degrade the relationships between an individual and the larger society. I'm not saying we should prohibit governments from using AI, but I'm saying that the more power you have, the more precautious you need to be with what you do with it, right? 
So the AI is one of the tools. It's like nuclear, uh, nuclear power. You know, uh, it's not just to be given to anyone to use as they like. It's something very powerful. That the more uh, access to it you have, the more precocious you need to be. The more protocols you need to put in place in order not to misuse it. Is there a way? that artificial intelligence, or do you believe artificial intelligence can be democratized? Meaning, can, can these power differentials between the governments and the people that they seek to serve be more or less equalized? Yes, in a way. In a way, it can. You know, uh, you can have... Today, you have uh, very powerful processors in, in smartphones. Uh, you can run very, very sophisticated uh, AI algorithms in a very small uh, smartphone. So, yeah, I, I believe there's not inherently uh, an anti-democratic uh, thread in, uh, in AI. It can be democratized. So you believe that by having access to artificial intelligence algorithms on our smartphones that partly this power differential can be reduced. Yes, I believe there's potential for reducing it. Definitely there's a... And what about the question of ownership, the owners of artificial intelligence algorithms, if they're in the case they're proprietary? I'm not sure what mm -hmm. the world of artificial intelligence is like, whether some of the protocols, I, I think I've heard of GP3L, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. this protocol for that many companies used to create artificially intelligent text. text. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think I've tried some of these services that are offered. They say that the back engine is an open source, but some of these services are paid and some of the results are actually quite good, quite impressive, actually, in many mm -hmm. ways better than what a human could think of in such a short time. <laughs> but, but yeah, so the ownership, uh, the ownership, you know, um, you can always create another AI algorithm. If you have the skills and the expertise. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there, there was a running joke that um, they say Bill Gates used to say, whoever uh, would read Donald Knuth's The Art of Computer Programming totally, they, the Bill Gates would give them a job right away. Um, it's a book, uh, basically several books with a lot of algorithms. And when you look at today's software, you know, uh, most of the algorithms are a combination of algorithms from Donald Knuth's uh, work. Uh, there's, you know, of course we've invented new things. Of course there's innovation in algorithms, but there's also a very significant body of knowledge that if you have that knowledge, well, you can construct a competing algorithm. It doesn't have to be the same, but still it can do quite well. So I think that knowledge is the way to fight uh, these differences. It's a very powerful way. And uh, paradoxically, thanks to the internet, uh, we have access to the knowledge today more than ever before. Okay, very good. Dr. Milan Stankovic, thank you for the interview. Do you have any final comments or questions that you would like to answer? Or maybe book yes, recommendations? I would, uh, yeah, I gave the book recommendation already. I have no better recommendation than uh, Brene Brown's uh, books. 
Uh, but I would like to appeal to all uh, developers who are listening to us to join our efforts to come and take a look at what we are doing at BlindNet. And since we are an open source company, I invite them to join us and uh, help us build better tools, help us build uh, better, better software, and uh, join us simply in building this uh, vision of the future that we have to build it into a reality. Thank you, Dr. Milan Stankovic, and thank you for what you do. It was a pleasure to speak with you and discuss about BlindNet and also the state of privacy and uh, democracy and digital democracy and how artificial intelligence and, and privacy impact the state of our democracy. So thank you for that. Thank you. Okay, have a great day and uh, hope to see you in another interview maybe in person at some conference or some other event with pleasure yeah with thank pleasure. you thank you for being with us today to learn more about the work we do please visit us at lifestyledemocracy.com to support the work we do you can do so through one-time payments recurring payments or by simply buying something from our online shop where we sell eco-friendly merchandise for people of all ages please visit us at lifestyledemocracy.com to learn more. Thank you again, and we look forward to welcoming you to the next episode.